0: News Talk 580-1059-KMJ. This is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler.
1: Where most employees are injured in the job, they're covered by the state's workers' compensation system, an insurance program paid for by employers. But California has among the highest workers' compensation rates in the nation, and claim frequency in the valley is 20% higher than the statewide average. How is the state's workers' compensation system working generally? We'll ask the state auditor, Elaine Howe. State oversight of the workers' compensation system, a temporary or total disability.
2: BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. BNSF, the engine that connects us. Additional funding for the MADI report made possible by a grant from the wonderful company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Fresno State,
1: where bold begins as well as the Bonner Family Foundation, Community Medical Centers, Dewey Square Group, Comcast Financial Agency, Nassiman LLP, Sagasser Watkins and Wheeland, and Valley Children's Hospital.
2: From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler.
1: Welcome. Workers' compensation is provided to workers who are injured on the job. How the workers' compensation system works or doesn't has been the subject of a lot of debate over the years. Our guest is Elaine Howell, this California State Auditor who examined an important aspect of the workers' comp system, doctors who examine injured workers when medical disputes arise. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you. So before we get into discussing doctors and, and workplace injuries, can you briefly explain the workers' comp system in California?
3: the workers comp system in california is a system that allows employers and employees to work together as far as if an employee gets injured on the job that employee is entitled to Either temporary benefits while they're off work recovering from the injury, and then the employer, in exchange for participating in the system, it reduces their the litigation related to that particular injury. Yeah, and so it's, benefits p- it's part of this. Is,
1: it's just to give you a little background and context. <laughs> this is part of a grand bargain uh, on workplace injuries. In the past, what it happened was employers had these high liabilities when employees were injured on the job, so they didn't like that. Employees had a real hard time winning those cases because employers had these defenses like. Contributory negligence, you contributed to the problem. Mm -hmm. Assumption of risk, you went into the mines, you knew it might fall on your head. Or fellow servant rule, another worker caused a problem. So it was very difficult for employees to win these cases so they didn't like the system. So the grand bargain was, hey, let's create this no fault system, exclusive remedy for workplace injuries, workers' compensation. Um, Employers um, are guaranteed limited exposure. Employees are guaranteed Guaranteed something, so that's kind right. of the system that was designed. Exactly. So this mm-hmm. system has been in place since 1913 in, in California, over 100 years. What are the current numbers? How many employees are injured on the job?
3: Uh, typically, the the most recent year we looked at, there were about 600, uh, close to 650,000 workers' compensation claims filed in the state of California. Um, so a significant number, I mean, we have a huge number of employees uh, in the state of California, but that's still a, a that's big a lot, number yeah. of employees getting injured on the job.
1: Well over half a million, and just, I did a little background, I looked at some of the data on this in terms of the causes and the types of injuries and who's most likely to be injured. And so the size of the workforce in California is 19 million, so mm-hmm. we have 684,000 cl- uh, 684, uh, claims. So do the rough mm-hmm. math on that, it's about 3 to 4% of the workforce every year is filing a workers' comp claim. Of course, there are some employees that could be filing multiple claims, so it's, it's an True. ish. Right. Um, the causes of injuries, not surprising. Lifting, mm-hmm. falling, tripping, uh, those kinds of things. Repetitive motion. Right. Uh, the types of injuries are where they occur. Lower back is the biggest mm-hmm. one, 11%. Mm-hmm. And the age group that's most likely to be impacted or filing workers' comp claims is between 45 uh, and 54. So that's kind of a, mm-hmm. those are the kind of folks that are filing claims. Mm-hmm. What are the types of benefits that employees mm-hmm. receive under the workers' comp system?
3: Sure, and so, so an employee injured on the job, first of all, they need medical treatment to, mm-hmm. to address the injury that they suffered on the job, but also they need some replacement of wages. So they may be on temporary disability, so they need some wages as they're recovering from the injury, so not only the medical care, and the medical benefits, but temporary benefits. Now, there are some employees that may be permanently disabled. They suffer an injury that they cannot recover from, so they will receive benefits related to that uh, decision as to whether or not that injury is permanent.
1: It's it's a pretty complicated system. I'm just going to break Mm -hmm. it down. So there's what's called a temporary disability, and you can either be temporary total disability or temporary partial disability. And that happens when a worker is unable to work for about at least three days. Then a doctor has to say, okay, the reason why you can't work is because you were injured on the job. Correct. Um, And then the employee gets this temporary disability until they either A, return to work, Mm -hmm. or B, uh, their condition becomes what's called permanent and stationary. Mm -hmm. The doctor says, there's nothing else we can do for you. So then it transitions to the second uh, kind of part of that which is permanent disability. Again, permanent partial or permanent total disability. Mm -hmm. And there's a formula there that tells employees how much they're gonna receive. It's actually set forth in statute, and it's based on the extent of the injury, the employee's age, their occupation, the date of the injury. There's also something called apportionment um, that says that how much of this injury was caused by work or how much of it was caused by other factors. Mm-hmm. And then finally, they look at uh, this thing called the adjustment factor, and that is how much is this injury going to impact future earnings. And again, the benefit amount is set forth in statute. One of the things I think it's really interesting to consider are the future increases in costs of claims. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the average cost, uh, look this up, of the permanent total disability claim uh, increased by 3.8% last year because that's mm-hmm. tied into the state average weekly wage. And so when that goes up, the permanent disability payment goes up, The second thing to think about is the increase in the number, not just the amount of the cost of the claims, but the number of claims, because there was a significant, uh, there could be a significant increase in workers' comp claims because of this thing called AB5, which Mm -hmm. uh, new state law that Mm -hmm. basically adopted a Supreme Court decision that limited who qualifies as an independent contractor. In other words, a lot of people who used to be considered independent contractors are now going to be reclassified potentially as employees, which means they're covered by state employment laws including workers' compensation. Absolutely correct. So the mm-hmm. Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office says that roughly one million workers could be affected. So that's we've got a, sit- a workers' comp system that's already a big system, and it's about to get a lot bigger. Absolutely so correct. how is the current system working? We're gonna talk about that in a moment. Mm-hmm. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Now, workers' compensation is one of those state programs that elicits strong reactions from both employers and employees. Our guest is Elaine Howe, California State mm-hmm. Auditor who recently took a close look at how one aspect of the state workers' compensation system is being administered, specifically something called the Qualified Medical Examiner Program, uh, those doctors that are brought in to examine injured workers when, when there's a medical dispute. So exactly who is a qualified medical examiner, right. short, QME for short. Mm-hmm. Um, how does a physician, physician become a QME?
3: So a- absolutely, what you what you just said, Mark, a, a QME is an individual that is brought in to try to resolve a dispute between the employee and the employer. A QME is a physician in California. They have to take a competency exam. They have to be a practicing commission uh, or, or physician and spending a certain amount of time providing direct treatment to individuals. I think it's about a third of their mm-hmm. time, um, and then they need to. Uh, put together an evaluation report, so they're seeing employees uh, and making various determinations as to the extent of the injury. Was it a work-related injury? Are they temporarily disabled? Are they permanently disabled? So they're the independent person who's looking at the the situation and trying to help the employee and the and the employer yeah, the ec- resolve the dispute. Yeah, the
1: expert that the workers' comp judges are looking to for 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 information. So, how is that QME program actually administered?
3: It's administered by the Division of Workers' Compensation. It's within our Department of Industrial Relations in California. Which The the Department
1: of Industrial Relations is kind of like our Department of Labor.
3: Exactly, exactly. Very similar. And so this Division of Workers' Compensation recruits uh, physicians in California to become QMEs. So they have a responsibility for not only appointing QMEs, making sure they pass the competency exam, they meet all the qualifications to be a QME. But they also have a responsibility for investigating a QME in the future, if there are complaints about that person's service, uh, Mm overbilling, et cetera, and they also have a responsibility for disciplining uh, QMEs. Mm -hmm. So they are responsible for making sure there's a sufficient pool of these individuals available uh, to resolve disputes that occur between employers and employees.
1: So how often are QMEs requested in these in these workers' comp cases? A
3: significant number. Um, in the fiscal year we looked at, we were talking about, what, 650,000, 680,000 uh, claims mm-hmm. filed. There were QME re- requests of about 145,000. So it's a significant 15 number percent or higher. Of, of of panels that were requested or QMEs were requested. Absolutely. It's a huge number. A
1: lot of disputes going on on, on workplace injuries. Well, once a doctor qualifies as a QME, how are they actually s- specifically uh, selected to review a particular medical dispute?
3: So it depends upon the employee. So there's represented employees, uh, part of a collective bargaining unit, and there are unrepresented employees. Now, represented employees, the way the division uh, puts this process together is they have a, basically a computer program that goes in and selects randomly three individuals. Okay. And then for a represented employee, the employer can say, I want to strike one of those individuals. the uh, injured worker strikes the other. The remaining person is the QME who is required to see that injured worker for unrepresented employees it's a little different and the unrepresented employees so you still have a, a panel of three potentials mm-hmm. um, but that unrepresented employee gets to pick from of those three oh. so it's, it's a little bit different than a represented employee
1: okay. Um. Okay, so after the QME reviews the case, they're supposed to issue a report within 30 days evaluating the injured worker, okay? What's supposed to be in the report?
3: So the QME report is supposed to address the issues that are in dispute. So if it's disputed, whether it's a workplace injury the extent of the injury, the extent of medical care necessary, any future medical care that the employee uh, feels that he or she needs. So this QME report has to have a variety of information because, as you said, it typically goes to a workers' compensation judge who ultimately is going to be the decider uh, with respect to you know, the extent of the injury, the extent of the disability, that sort of thing. So this is critical information from a, for a workers' compensation judge to have to ultimately get uh, a resolution on the case. Okay, so up
1: next we're gonna talk about how well that QME process is actually working. What did the state auditor find? That in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Elaine Howe, California state auditor whose duties uh, among other things includes ferreting out fraud, waste and abuse in state government. Recently her office issued a report on a key aspect of the state's workers' compensation system. The doctors referred to as QMEs are critical in resolving medical disputes surrounding workers' compensation claims. So your report suggests that the state has failed to adequately administer that QME program. Mm-hmm. One of the issues you cite in your report is the inadequate number of QMEs. What, what are the numbers?
3: Right. So so we looked at a five-year window, and we looked at the number of QMEs available to resolve these types of disputes. And we just talked about 600, almost 700,000 claims, 150,000, close to 150,000 are disputed. We had 3,100 QMEs. Four or five years ago the most recent numbers are dropped down below 2800 so we have a little over 2700 individuals available to address these disputes and i'm guessing the number of claims are
1: going up but the number of qmes are going down exactly
3: and that was the other the other aspect that we looked at is the number of requests for panels requests for qmes went from about 105,000 four or five years ago to almost 145,000 now. And you have the number of QMEs going down, but the number of requests for these individuals increasing nearly by 50%. So that's a significant problem in California. So when we talk to the Division of Workers' Compensation. I was thinking, I was thinking when you
1: said "I think justice delayed is justice denied. You, right. you can't get a QME to, to figure out wh- what the problem is.
3: Exactly. So, so what is happening, because one of the other requirements is once an employee has identified a QME, so this is the QME that's going to um, provide services or, you know, evaluate the injury, evaluate my medical care, etc. There's a state requirement that that employee has to be seen within 60 days. And then, as you mentioned, the report has to be completed 30 days after that. The problem is, many of those QMEs, because there's a dwindling supply, aren't available. So that employee has to go back to the Division of Workers Comp and say, I couldn't get an appointment within 60 days. You have to find another QME for me. Produce and a new panel? Or a, a new, a complete new panel of three I mean, Here we go again. All through the process all over again, and that has increased significantly. It's 45,000 replacement panels. About a third of those were because the QME that originally was identified as the physician was not available to see that employee. So there is a real problem in California as far as access to care, essentially.
1: Well, it was interesting because I was reading your report, and it says that the, the state agency, the Department of Workers' Compensation, has not done an independent study on this. I mean, they're making right. some assumptions as to why, you know, they don't have the shortage of QMEs. They're saying, well, there's a general shortage of doctors. That's not mm-hmm. really true. Uh, right. Two, they're saying that the, uh, many doctors aren't going into private practice. That is somewhat true. Mm-hmm. And then there are barriers such as uh, MCOs that require more, more lengthy evaluation. So they're saying there are some reasons. But they've never done an independent study to really figure out what's going on here.
3: Right. And that's the concern we raised in the audit report, because you're right. When we sat down with the division, they're not even acknowledging that there's a shortage. They're saying, oh, there are a variety of reasons, and it's because of certain specialties. But our argument is, you have a dwindling supply of QMEs. Some specialties, there aren't even very many Mm -hmm. QMEs available in the entire state of California. You have injured workers asking for this dispute to be resolved, some workers put off seeking medical care until this situation is resolved. Which exacerbates the problem
1: and then it is more costly to both the employee and the employer.
3: Exactly, exactly. Um,
1: So you found that the number of QMEs have also been impacted because of the fee structure. The fees are paid. What did you find there?
3: Right, so what the Division of Workers' Compensation is required to do is to look at that fee on an annual basis. A QME is paid, of course, for their services. What we found is that medical fee schedule, as it's called, had not been updated since 2006. Wow so that's, that's a long time, long time. Um, and they're supposed to be reviewing uh, updating it every year so mm-hmm. that these people are compensated appropriately so we just did uh, a CPI you know price index and uh, how and would inflation impact exactly impact these fees. just using inflation and it would go from about 600 and some odd dollars to 812 so that's a wow. significant that's increase a big jump. and that's for a basic. There are now specialists who get paid more, but that's one of the problems. Some of these QMEs are are physicians in California. I don't want to be a QME. They can't afford. They I can't, can't afford, afford to, do to take time away from my practice to provide this service because I'm not even getting reimbursed.
1: Well, the other thing too is it's going to mean the QME is going to probably do a more rushed, you know, evaluation because they're on the
3: clock. Right, and that's another problem that we had in looking at the medical reports. I know we're going to talk about that as far as the quality of those reports.
1: So let me ask you this. So uh, the QMEs that do exist are frequently uh, unavailable, so that exacerbates the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And you point specifically to the selection process. Specifically, what's wrong with the selection process that's making the QMEs less available?
3: Well, we have a concern with the the process, particularly with the the, uh, represented employees, because if you have three QMEs, and the injured worker eliminates one the employer in- eliminates the other you're left with one and then the the injured worker tries to make an appointment and nine times out of ten they can't so they have to go, go back the to whole the division pa- okay. and you're going through the whole process again so we think that original s- panel should be bigger so instead of three potential mm-hmm. QMEs let's expand it to five still give the employee the opportunity to strike one and the employer the opportunity to strike one and then the, the, the three? final three. Pick from, so it's from somewhat
1: similar to the, to the unrepresented one where they have three and they can pick one, and then if that doesn't work, they can probably go to the second one. That's
3: yes. correct. That was so the, the thought process that we put into that recommendation. No, that, makes, mm-hmm.
1: that makes a lot of sense. So mm-hmm. you note some issues uh, with the way the state has been using the reappointment process to right. discipline QMEs who are accused of overbilling. What did you find there?
3: Right, so this was another concern that we had. So the Division of Workers' Compensation has a responsibility, as I said, to investigate and discipline. And then they also reappoint. So a QME is appointed for a two-year window, and then they want to seek reappointment. What the division was doing is rather than addressing a complaint immediately when it was filed and to determine whether or not that QME violator is overbilling, for example, mm-hmm. they wait until their reappointment. And then they deny their reappointment based on the allegation that they're overbilling. So that QME now is out of the pool. That is one less QME And they're probably available. relying
1: on a uh, sizable part of their income probably is that QME work.
3: Right. Some of these QMEs, it's it could be upwards of a third of their, you know, practice. their practice. Thank mm-hmm. you. Um, and so it's a significant loss to them. Mm-hmm. So some of these QMEs just decide to settle so they, ca- they can get back into the mix.
1: Yeah, but, but some would argue, hey, it's, it's good that they're kind of negotiating these things out. They're not litigating these overbillings. I mean, what do you say to that? Are, are, you, are you opposed to the settlement agreements that, that QMEs are entering into? when they're accused of overbilling or is it something else that you don't like about the process?
3: We really are disappointed in the process because there should be a separate process for reappointing, making a decision to reappoint or appoint or reappoint, in Mm -hmm. this case, a QME. And there should be a separate disciplinary process where you're investigating allegations. Those should be kept separately. It's basically due process rights. Exactly, due process rights. Okay, another
1: last issue we have here we can talk about for about 15 seconds here is, you found the state was not reviewing the, the QME reports for quality or the uh, tracking when workers' comp judges were saying, hey, these, workers, these QME reports failed to meet minimum standards. Uh, in what ways were these QME reports deficient and what's the big deal?
3: Well, the big deal is these are the reports that the workers' compensation judge relies on to okay. make a determination to resolve the dispute between the injured worker and the employer. There's a state law that requires the Division of Workers' Compensation to review these reports periodically to make sure that right. the quality is good. If the quality is a problem, you need to get training or you need to deal with that particular QME. The other issue with workers' compensation judges, they can reject a report, and if they reject more than five reports for a particular QME, that person is no longer eligible to serve as a QME. The quality of those reports is critically important to the process.
1: So So we need to know what's going on there. So what are some of the ways that California can improve the workers' compensation system generally and the QME process in particular? That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with California State Auditor Elaine Howe about a key aspect of the state's workers' compensation system. The doctors, known as qualified medical examiners or QMEs, who examine injured workers when medical disputes arise. So one issue you found was too few uh, QMEs. What do you think needs to be done to address that issue?
3: Well, the Division of Workers' Compensation within our Department of Industrial Relations really needs to put a plan together to try to recruit and, and uh, get more QMEs into this system. I mean, The, the dwindling supply is they really... They also need to
1: acknowledge that there's a shortage. They need
3: to start <laughs> start there and then <laughs> right. come up with a plan. And they they really haven't done a good analysis of, Different types of specialties uh, versus, you know, primary care physicians that are needed uh, in the system. They also need to work with some of the managed care organizations because one of the excuses they gave to us was managed care physicians and managed care uh, organizations are they're not willing to serve as QMEs, But that's
1: increasingly where the healthcare system is going. Exactly, and that's
3: where a lot of the physicians are. So they've got to continue to work with those organizations to try to get some of those physicians to be part of this process.
1: So you also talk about the need to reduce delays in the replacement panels, Um, how so?
3: Right, and we talked about that a little bit as far as uh, broadening the the number of QMEs available to uh, an unrepresented employee. So instead of the three where they pick from one, they can uh, have five individuals. This would
1: be, would be represented or unrepresented. Re- I think uh, represented, you want to move to five, because unrepresented right, have, sorry. F- have three. Thank
3: you for the correction. Yeah. Yes, it's yeah. five for the represented because... Right. Which makes a lot of sense. Right, because that's the situation where the employee can strike one and the employer, and then you have three left. So yeah. thank you for correcting me on that. So yeah. we think broadening the size of that pool, the initial panel to select from will, will yes. help reduce the number of replacement panels necessary. It, s- it seems
1: very logical. Um, so you also talk about the need for more transparency and oversight uh, mm-hmm. of QMEs by the state. What do you want to see done
3: there? Right, as we talked about, so the the Division of Workers' Comp, again, is responsible for investigating allegations or complaints against QMEs. When we looked at their process, they basically had a flow chart. They didn't have very many procedures, policies for their staff, and it's all about due process. So they need to develop some specific protocols for how they're going to handle complaints that come in and keep that separate from the reappointment process unless they have investigated something and, and determined that there's a problem. Then that may come up when the individual is up for reappointment.
1: Yeah, it almost sounds like it almost sounds like a little bit like the state is kind of strong-arming QMEs in, in, in a way. If, if they're accused of overbilling, they just kind of use that against them in the reappointment and the QME says, I've got to settle this because a big part, a third of my practice is, is this.
3: Absolutely. And that's what we heard from some individuals when we were conducting the audit, that they really felt pressured to settle so that they could remain part of the system. They want to be a part of the system, not just for the finances and the ability to provide services, but they care about injured workers. So they want to be part of it. And they were feeling pressured to settle uh, based on allegations that they felt were not fair.
1: Okay, so what are some of your recommendations you have when it comes to the state monitoring the quality of these QME reports?
3: Right, and as I indicated, there is a state law that requires the division to review those, so we're suggesting, follow first of all, follow the state law, but review those periodically and and then determine whether or not you need to provide more training to QMEs, uh, whether or not you need to make sure that it's clear what the expectations are of a QME when they put that medical report together. And then also working with the workers' compensation judges to, because the judges are required to report to the division when they reject a the report. We found that wasn't happening. And that will also inform the division about the problems with the quality of the reports. So there's a there's a twofold, two parts to that you recommendation. You kind of also
1: target who who exactly, which of the QMEs, there might be one QME that's causing all the problems, but nobody's really keeping track of it, so nobody really knows. Exactly. Um, mm-hmm. And also, if you have five rejected reports it is, then you're, you're kicked out as a QME.
3: Right, if you have more than five rejected reports in a particular year, you will be, you will no longer be able to serve as a QME. So
1: all, all good information, how do we improve the workers' compensation system? This is a start. Uh, I want to thank our guest, California State Auditor Elaine Howe, for joining us. If you want to stay up with state and local politics, you can follow the Maddie Institute on Facebook, Twitter, or log on to our website at mattyinstitute.org.
0: The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.
1: California's $25 billion workers' compensation system is designed to help workers who are injured on the job. Unfortunately, some people try to cheat the system, with workers' comp fraud estimates running between $1 and $3 billion a year. Are we doing enough to fight workers' compensation fraud? We'll ask Elaine Howe, California state auditor, whose office recently authored a report on that very issue.
2: Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Chevron's Oil Field and Fresno County have been doing side-by-side for over 100 years. Learn more at doers.com. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler.
1: Welcome. Workers' compensation has a noble purpose, to provide a benefit to injured workers to help them get back on their feet. However, because of its size and complexity, the state's $25 billion workers' compensation system creates ample opportunity for fraud. Estimates are in the range of $1 to $3 billion a year. Recently, the Office of the State Auditor examined what can be done to better detect fraudulent claims. California State Auditor Elaine Howell is here to discuss the findings. Welcome to the MADI Report. Thank you. So can you briefly describe workers' compensation? Uh, what is it? How does it work?
3: Sure. As you as you indicated in your opening, a workers' compensation is a system in California that provides benefits to employees who may be either injured or disabled on, on the job so that they can get the appropriate medical benefits um, income uh, payments while they may be disabled or away from work but it's a system that employers pay into. They ha- get insurance and that Prevents the employers or, or protects them a bit from being sued by the employees. So it gives the employees the benefit of medical services if they are injured, income while they're off the job, but also protects employers from being sued by those employees.
1: And it's a pretty big system. I mean, I was looking at your report, you, you cited. million employees are covered by the Mm -hmm. system, 936,000 employers are covered by the system, 607,000 accidents and uh, and injuries and illnesses a year. It's it's a a pretty big system. Very big system. So so the idea is it's a no-fault insurance system funded by employers uh, to cover workplace injuries. It's the exclusive remedy for uh, workplace injuries. So I assume then the employer's insurance rates are based on how many injuries there are in the workplace. Um, And so more injuries result in higher premiums. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So how much does this cost than California employers?
3: Well, as you indicated, uh, on a yearly basis, the system is about $25 billion. And you're right, an employer, depending upon the type of employment, so a roofer, for example, uh, employing individuals going up on a roof, it's higher risk than uh, someone working in an accounting pool. So there's a rating bureau that establishes the rates based on the type of work, but also the extent of the number of injuries that a particular employer may have with their employees. And I'm sure that's so kind of baked into change.
1: the... So it's baked into the, the cost for roofing, for example. They put that into the cost of, of roofing. Correct. By the way, a bad idea to hire, you know, a, a mm-hmm. roofer that's not covered by workers' compensation because then you're going to be individually responsible if they get injured. Right. Um, so state agencies. There's a number of state agencies that administer the workers' comp system. Briefly, mm-hmm. who are they? What are they?
3: Sure. There, there's two primary agencies, Department of Industrial Relations, and that's the entity that's responsible for, really, managing managing workers' compensation claims. They also assist with some of the investigative work that's done. Department of Insurance, of course, is our state entity that licenses insurers. So they're making sure that insurers stay solvent, et cetera, and those insurers that cover workers' compensation or any type of insurance. But also the Department of Insurance has an important role in investigating potential fraudulent uh, claims or uh, by employees, employers, providers, etc. So they do much of the investigative work. There's also work that's done at the local level by DAs. The primary state agencies, though, are the Department of Insurance and the Department of Industrial Relations.
1: You also said something about a rating bureau, which is a private entity that that establishes pure premium rates. I guess those are the benchmarks. That, that are based, that, that, that workers' compensation rates are based on. They're recommendations to the insurance commissioner.
3: That's correct. So, this okay. rating bureau, absolutely, as you indicated, we talked about just a few minutes ago, is depending on the type of employer right. and the number of claims that they may have, the number of injuries their employees have suffered, that affects the rates. And this rating bureau is basically a nonprofit, as you indicated, that determines what the rates will be for the different types of insurance for different types so lots, of employers. Lots, lots,
1: lots of players. Now, we also mm-hmm. have on the other side, we've got the insurance companies and the service providers. So what do insurance companies, mm-hmm. what role do they play and what role do, ins- do service providers play in the process?
3: Well, certainly insurance companies are providing the insurance, uh, the workers' compensation insurance for the employers, okay. but they also have a role in in trying to identify potential fraud uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about that mm-hmm. in, a, in a little bit, about where they're Required by state law to have some investigative units in their companies to try to identify potential right. fraud. Um, the service providers are medical professionals, other types of providers assisting employees in filing complaint claims for workers' compensation insurance. That would like collect
1: rehabilitation uh, sure. services, those kinds of things. Right. Okay. Right. So the focus on mm-hmm. your on your report is workers' compensation fraud. How mm-hmm. big a problem is it?
3: Uh, workers comp fraud is a significant problem in california it's one to three the the estimates out there are between one and three billion dollars a year in fraudulent claims uh... so this is certainly an issue that the state needs to pay attention to and needs to do everything it can to try to prevent first of all but it certainly detect and prosecute uh... fraudulent claims of of workers compensation
1: and i think in, in your report it says that four to twelve percent of the system's costs were were fraud-related, and then mm-hmm. employers are likely to pass this on, you also indicate, it's talked about something called chargeable fraud. Um, and and mm-hmm. I guess that's fraud that you can actually mm-hmm. prosecute and win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those numbers are, I think you said $970 million. Uh, these are ones we think, you know, we're going to win these claims. Uh, so, so pretty right. significant. And right. they also talked about the increase in workers' comp uh, mm-hmm. fraud. Um, it's it's you know
3: growing at a rate of 525 uh, percent. Well, that's specifically for so what you're speaking about is chargeable fraud, and that's what local district attorneys feel very confident that they would get a conviction. Uh, The 525% increase is that chargeable fraud, but specifically for providers. That is the biggest area where we have seen an increase from, and we looked at a three year window. So from year one to year three, it increased from about 130 million to over 800 million in chargeable fraud. So this is fraud local DAs feel very confident they can convict.
1: Wow uh, pretty interesting so up next we're going to talk about why is it so difficult to uh, to uncover workers compensation fraud that conversation in a moment this is the Maddie report welcome back I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute we're talking with California State auditor Elaine Howe about combating fraud in the workers compensation system so what are the different types
3: of fraud sure there's four four primary types of fraud the employee fraudulently claiming they are injured or they are they still need to stay off the job employers uh, fraudulently uh, not necessarily ensuring that their employees are getting the coverage or they on, need, or,
1: or, or saying that one person really is, you know, a roofer is really on clerical staff, That's and so on, right. lower rates, right? Misclassifying
3: okay. employees, insurance, insurance companies, insurance companies, um, as far as issuing uh, is policies that they are not intending to. Yeah. Support they, there's no there provide there. Provide services, no, yeah. I mean, is, right. Certificate of insurance, exactly. really
1: really nothing there. And then exactly. service providers which you're really concerned about.
3: Service providers is the biggest area of fraud that we've seen where there's a huge increase. And this is medical providers, attorneys, other individuals, uh, part of the process, and assisting employees when they file a claim. Yeah,
1: billing for things maybe that aren't, services that aren't being conducted, being Correct. done.
3: Correct. Um, so you, you indicate there are, the state has uh, different ways to
1: combat workers' compensation fraud. There are four different categories. One is prevention.
3: Right. Um, mm-hmm.
1: So the second is detection. The third is investigations. The fourth is prosecution. Any comments you want to make on those?
3: Sure. Prevention is trying to identify um, and, and provide outreach education to employees. Uh, as far as their employer potentially fraudulently claiming they're they're a clerical person as opposed to a roofer. And then doing, we're expecting the Department of Industrial Relations, our state agency, to really do some analytics, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, as far as doing analyses to try to identify potential fraud to hopefully prevent it in the future. Investigation is critically important. That should happen at the state level, but certainly at the local level by the DAs. And then prosecution. Of is, course, the is the DA's, uh, and that's important to hold people accountable.
1: I, I actually uh, mediated a case once and I was telling the the charging party, I explained to them that I thought there was potential of workers' compensation fraud, and I explained it was a felony. His eyes got as wide as saucers. Um, mm-hmm. the people don't know that you can get into a lot of trouble for filing a fraudulent claim. That's correct. Um, mm-hmm. Okay, so in your report, um, one of the
3: problems you talk about in terms of detecting workers' comp fraud are this thing called referrals or the lack of right. referrals. Right. What, what did you find? So what state law requires is an insurance company to have what's called a special investigative unit. So any insurance company that is offering insurance comp- workers' compensation uh, insurance needs to, to be doing these types of analytics. And then if they see something that is potentially fraud, they are required to refer that to the state of California through the Department of Insurance and to the local DA. But there's a lot of them that aren't. Doing referrals, right? So what we did is we did an analysis of the top twenty-one insurers. So they have the highest amount volume of insurance premiums mm-hmm. they're providing insurance, and we looked at a three-year window. And some of those insurers, the biggest, had referred one. In many cases, zero, zero referrals.
1: I did the math on this. When I was looking at your numbers. Forty, almost forty percent of eight out of the right. twenty-one did not make referrals.
3: Exactly, and it's just not reasonable for one of the largest insurers to not see any kind of of, uh, circumstance that looks like potential fraud. So we really raised a, a red flag there, not only with the insurance companies, but the Department of Insurance has a role in looking and auditing insurers, And so we said, are you doing this kind of analysis to see? Well, you're a huge insurer in California. How could you have zero referrals to I think
1: the insurance company would want to ferret out the fraud, but apparently... Forty uh, percent is the number is the number. Let's go on to data, data analytics. We talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you think that's a really good way maybe to kind of help solve this problem. Uh, you found that the Department of Industrial Relations is uh, not really using data analytics like it maybe should. What's the problem?
3: Right. I mean, clearly big data, data analysis is really important, can be a very power, powerful tool. And it's something that was identified years ago as a tool that, that industrial relations should be using as far as two aspects, detection, uh, both both um, looking back and then predictive so using the analysis that you've done of past fraudulent right. claims looking to see other certain indicators here let's apply that to to the current data we have to try to predict potential right. fraud. Trends. So the Department of Industrial Relations should be doing that and assisting the Department of Insurance in, in identifying, again, similar to what insurance companies should be doing, our state agencies should be collaborating to try to identify potential fraud and then hopefully investigate it and okay, prosecute. So dropping
1: the ball maybe on both ends. Okay, the last thing you talk about here is, is this uh, Explanation of benefits statements to injured right. employees. Injured employees send a statement saying,
3: "Here's what we took care of." You think giving that to employees is a good idea to kind of ferret out fraud? Absolutely. And we saw uh, the state of California does it for disability insurance. Uh, this the national Medicare program uses explanation of benefits. We think this could be an additional tool that the state could use. So if I'm an injured worker and I get that explanation of benefits and I see, well, I was, I'm, uh, I. I my, my employer is being charged for an MRI. Well, uh, I never had an yeah, MRI. Right. So it's another resource that the state could use. We think it's a very important tool uh, to add to the toolbox for uh, our no, state. No, another,
1: another check. Well, up next, we're gonna talk about investigating the investigations of workers' comp fraud. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Matty Institute. We're talking with Elaine Howe, California State Auditor, about a recent report her office did on ways the state can reduce workers' compensation fraud. One of the major shortcomings you found was the lack of investigators. How mm-hmm. short-staffed? Mm-hmm. Are they?
3: Well, as of February, uh, the Department of Insurance we're talking about, because they conduct these investigations, mm-hmm. they had about a 27 percent vacancy rate, and we looked at about a three year window looking back to see how many staff were they losing, and they lost a significant number of employees to other state agencies, but it really weakened the ability for the Department of Insurance to do investigations. In fact, in many cases, they closed a referral. They didn't even investigate yeah, I, it because they didn't have the staff to yeah, do I, it. Yeah,
1: I want to ask you about that. So. If you're not investigating these complaints, there are people getting away with fraud. That's absolutely uh, true. And what did your what did your numbers find
3: in terms of fraud? Uh were,
1: yeah, were the, the numbers big?
3: The numbers were big as far as the, the First of all, there were fewer referrals coming in, right. but the Department of Insurance was having to close more and more cases, more of those referrals, because they just had insufficient resources. I, don't, I mean, you might have to help yeah, with I mean, the mean, there was, there was like
1: $180 million, I'm sorry, $160 million mm-hmm. on average, and the average referral that they weren't getting and, and, and prosecuting or investigating was 18900 Then right. what I thought was really mm-hmm. interesting in your report was mm-hmm. employee fraud. Um, they're saying that subset would be sixty-six point eight million dollars um, right. in investigations. They're not doing that's an average of nine thousand eight hundred. This is big mm. money.
3: It's right? big money. And
1: yes. then what I found was really interesting was provider fraud, mm-hmm. uh, which you were talking about, service provider. There, the numbers are a little smaller. It's only about eight percent of the total. But. The, their total is $48 million. The average is $71,800 right. for right. a lost and, refer, referral
3: that's not being investigated. Right, and that's where we think they money. should, they, absolutely big money, and they should target their efforts. If you're seeing such a huge increase in provider fraud, again, the DAs feel that it's chargeable, then let's focus our efforts there, but right. unfortunately, Department of Insurance, over the three years we looked at, they were closing about twenty-eight percent of their cases because they didn't have resources. Over that three year window, that doubled to about fifty-four percent of their cases. So they need more investigators. So they need to do something to get more staff in their department to stay there. It's almost a classic example of pennywise and pound foolish in a way,
1: right? So mm-hmm. why if staffing's the issue, why don't we just the state just give the 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 Department of uh, Insurance, just more money. Just get more money, hire more staff.
3: Well, and that was part of it. Part of it was they, they did an analysis and we looked at their analysis where their investigators were making less money than investigators at Department of Justice, at Department of Corrections. That's where they lost a lot of their staff. But that's, that's not the only thing that they need to do. We felt they needed to understand why are some of those employees leaving? It's not just because of money. Is it because of job satisfaction? Mm-hmm. Some of the employees that left felt they didn't have the tools, resources, training to do their jobs and to do them well.
1: Now, one thing is you also talked about, maybe a better way to be more efficient with the limited
3: resources the state has, is this thing called vertical prosecution. Right. Uh, what do you mean by that? How would it work? Vertical prosecution is something that's been very successful in uh, a lot of different investigative scenarios, but certainly in this, it's where an investigator is working very closely with the DA, the individual who's going to prosecute the case, so that when the investigator is collecting the evidence and doing the analysis, doing the actual investigation, he or she is collaborating with that DA to make sure I'm getting every everything that you need to be able to successfully prosecute. Much more efficient.
1: Yeah, the left hand knows what the right hand is doing, right? right. It's not duplication of effort. So you know, you, one of the things you flagged in, in your report was that the, the California Department of Insurance lacks a plan to recruit and retain investigators. Right. Uh, what are kind of the things you'd like to see? You talked about the money. They're, they're paid quite a bit less. Right. As opposed to if you're an investigator for the Department of Justice or something, you're paid quite a bit more.
3: Right. And they did, they did address the salary issue. They actually worked with our California Human Resources Agency that's responsible for salaries. And they did get a bump in their salaries. But we said, you need a retention plan. You need to understand why these employees are leaving above and beyond just money. And, and also broaden your recruiting Um, one of the things that they don't do and that we think they should do is recruit recruit retired law enforcement because they have the skill set to be able to assist in conducting investigations and at a recent legislative hearing I talked about Well, you want to bring in junior people, people coming out of school with a criminal justice major, but let's bring in some retired law enforcement to work with them and train them. And then you have your succession plan in place.
1: Okay. Well, up next, we're going to talk a little bit more about how do you solve the workers' comp fraud situation in California. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Matty Institute. So what are the things that can be done to reduce workers' comp fraud? Our guest is the state auditor, Elaine Howe, has some recommendations in that regard. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you're concerned about, we talked about earlier, is this issue of referrals. Uh, The California Department of Insurance does not currently screen uh, for referral rates, so what would you like to see done?
3: Uh, a couple of things. We had two key recommendations related to this, and and, uh, one of the graphics in our report really helped depict what we think would be beneficial. So put a scorecard essentially up on the website. Here are the top 21 insurers in workers' compensation, and here are the number of referrals they've submitted to us, the Department of Insurance, in the last three years or two years or whatever time frame you select. Then you're really going to identify and put out there publicly, here are these insurers who are generating a significant amount of insurance premium and they're profiting from that but, the significance but they're
1: not of that, referring. Right. But the significance of that if I'm an employer is if if I know my insurance company is not going after fraud it means they're paying out on claims they shouldn't be which means my rates are going to be higher. Exactly. So that puts exactly. some pressure on the insurance company to really be aggressive about right, this. Right
3: because right now as you indicated a few minutes ago when we were talking insure, insurance companies can just pass the cost on to right. the employer. The rates go up for the employers. so there really is a lot to the consumer. To the consumer absolutely. Right. So the other thing we suggested the Department of Insurance needs to do is to target some of those insurers for audit to go in and say you've only referred three claims in the last two years we don't think that's reasonable based on the size of your premium. And the low referral
1: rate probably puts you on Top of the top of the scale in terms of exactly. priority, exactly. It audited. Right. Um, the other thing you're talking about was uh, <clears throat> unspent funds, using that money to really augment district attorney's mm-hmm. office as opposed to just giving the money back to employers uh, in subsequent years. W- what are your thoughts there?
3: Right. So the thoughts there are there's a there's a formula as far as 40 percent of the fraud assessment goes to the Department of Insurance mm-hmm. to administer, 40 percent goes to DAs, and then there's 20 percent that's flexible. Typically that has been going to the DAs, but because of the number of vacancies that insurance has had in the past, they haven't spent all their money. Well, rather than give that money to the DAs to assist them in additional prosecution, they have basically reduced Mm -hmm. the rates in the future. But if you want to combat fraud, let's get that money to the DAs who have demonstrated that they could use more funding. So we need to see some uh, changes in how the the funding is provided at the state level and certainly at the local level.
1: Yeah, that 20% discretionary, you might see more to the DAs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another thing your report recommends is that the Department of Industrial Relations use that data analytics we were talking about to identify service provider fraud. Um, fine, but they've been talking about this for
3: some time. What, right. You have confidence they're going to actually get this done? Right, and and well, well we're pressing them. Okay. I mean, and that's part of what the report and the recommendations is. You know, this is something that you identified several years ago. You're just starting to get rolling on this, mm-hmm. but they really haven't developed a strong methodology, metrics, the types of things, methodology that they're going to use to, to create these analytics, both descriptive, as I talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. to identify past practices, but also predictive. So we really want to put the pressure on industrial relations to do a better job and get really moving on these analytics because you've known it's a beneficial tool and and you should have had it in place long before I'm guessing
1: when when the Chamber of Commerce or the National Federation of Independent Mm -hmm. Businesses sees your report and Mm realizes it's impacting their members, they're probably going to be knocking on someone's door and saying, you guys got to pick up the pace here. Right. Um, Okay, you also talk about enlisting injured employees in, in the battle to combat workers' comp fraud by mm-hmm. having them review these uh, benefit statements for overcharge right. things of that nature. Any proof that this is actually going to reduce workers' comp fraud?
3: Well, we've seen, we looked at, as I said, disability insurance in California requires EOBs. The Medicare system submits EOBs, uh, these explanation of benefits to their uh, individuals who receive Medicare. Um, and it's been successful it, as far as individuals saying, yes, I look at that particular, that EOB as it's referred to, and I will report something that I think might be fraudulent um, because I have a duty to do so. The pushback we've received from the department and some of the insurers is, oh, it's going to be expensive to right. do. So we talked to some private sector, Disney. They send out EOBs that cost them 50 cents per EOB. And what we're suggesting is Do it periodically, perhaps on a quarterly basis. You don't have to send it out every single month or every single time an employee receives a benefit, but at least at some periodic time, and those employees, again, will serve as a tool uh, to strengthen our... our you know, enforcement and, and preventative measures uh, with respect to fraud. You know,
1: it's interesting, just specifically, you, you looked at a 1998 report by the Office of Inspector General at mm-hmm. Medicare, just to prove your, kind of, reiterate right. your point, mm-hmm. they found that 74% of Medicare beneficiaries right. said they would always read their EOB statements, and another 89% said that if they saw fraud, they'd they report it. They
3: would report it, that's correct. Um, and so
1: you're, you're talking about, you know, if cost is an issue, there's a way to reduce it by not doing it as frequently and et cetera. Right. And right. some examples in the private sector.
3: Absolutely, Okay, yes. well, I mm-hmm. want to
1: thank the state auditor. Uh, Uh, Elaine Howell for joining us to talk about this important uh, issue of workers' comp fraud. If you want to stay current on state and local politics, you can follow the Maddie Institute on Facebook, Twitter, or log on to our website at maddieinstitute.com. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Institute. Thanks for joining us. The views expressed in the Maddie Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org.
0: Report. Valley Views Edition is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.